Welcome to the Compounders Podcast, where we explore the anatomy of public company wealth creation stories. On this show, we invite you to be a fly on the wall for the actual conversations professional investors have with public company CEOs. I'm your host, Ben Claremont, a partner and portfolio manager at Cove Street Capital. In these conversations, I interview senior executives by posing the exact questions I ask as part of Cove Street's diligence process. Whether you are a professional investor, founder, or someone who is simply interested in business, we think this podcast has something for you. This season of Compounders is sponsored by Deluba. Deluba was founded by a former hedge fund analyst to bring simplicity to the investment process. Deluba offers an AI-driven, single source for all company reported data and allows for investment teams to make the most informed decisions in the shortest amount of time. For more information, please visit delupa.com slash compounders. All opinions expressed by your hosts and the podcast guests are solely their own opinion and do not reflect the opinion of Cove Street Capital or any affiliates. This podcast is for informational purposes only. It is not investment advice and should not be relied upon for any investment decisions. We are not recommending the purchase or sale of any securities. The hosts and guests may be beneficial owners of the securities discussed. You should not assume that the securities discussed are or will be profitable. Our guest on the show this week was Aaron Graft, the founder, vice chairman, and CEO of Triumph Financial. Just as the impacts of the great financial crisis were waning, Aaron led a team of people who took over a failing bank to create Triumph. Aaron has been instrumental in transforming the bank into a transportation-focused industry leader. Specifically, Aaron has helped turn what was a small factoring business into a high-margin one that buys a billion dollars in invoices from truckers every month. In recent years, Aaron has turned his focus to building a payments company that caters to all of the constituents in the trucking industry. In this fascinating discussion, we covered the benefits of having a bank structure despite Triumph not being a typical community bank, how the company has built the factoring business over time and why it is so profitable, the vision for Triumph Pay and the path to building it into something much larger, and why the company has been so aggressive in repurchasing its own shares. For full disclosure, Coast Street is not a Triumph financial shareholder. And without any further ado, here is my conversation with Triumph's founder, vice chairman, and CEO, Aaron Graft. As always, we will start this podcast off at a pivotal moment in the company's history. In reviewing the history of the company, it would appear to me that the purchase of the factoring business was a hugely impactful event. Maybe you can give us a brief overview of what Triumph was before making the de- that deal, how you got the confidence to pursue it, and what that business has become since then. Yeah, that's a, a great question, and thanks for having me. So that transaction the acquisition of what was then called Advanced Business Capital closed on January the 13th, 2012, which just so happened to be Friday the 13th. Um, And so maybe it felt a little ominous at the time. And what you need to know is that from November 5th, 2010, until that day that we closed on Friday the 13th, 90% of that time was all about defense and not about offense. And the reason was, is because we were buying a failing bank. You know, it hadn't failed, but it was in a lot of trouble. And when you buy a failing bank, even though you didn't make the mess, you live with the mess. And so it took us a year 
to get out from under all of the regulatory orders and overhang that comes with being part of a troubled institution. And while you're doing that, there's no playing offense. There's no, we're going to go do this or a new line of business. It's no, you got to clean your house up. So Triumph before Friday the 13th, 2012 was really a rehabilitation project. You know, it was spring cleaning, getting all the bad assets out. But during that time, and frankly, even before our original acquisition of the bank, I had met a gentleman by the name of Steve Hausman. And Steve was the founder and president of Advanced Business Capital. And that little business, he'd grown it. He'd been in and around the transportation business his whole life. And so he started that factoring business with the financial backing of some private investors, mainly who lived in Chicago. And he'd grown it into a great business. And and since I know not everybody on your podcast knows what factoring is, let me be clear. Factoring is actually the oldest form of finance. It predates lending. And the difference is this. If I'm loaning money to a trucker, then I just give them the money. And then I expect that they take that money and they use it to operate their business, to buy new equipment, to do whatever you need. Just like I would lend you money to go buy your house. Factoring is where we buy the accounts receivable and we, we take control of the dominion of funds. So if a trucking company falls a load for a really large company like Anheuser-Busch, and so Anheuser-Busch owes that trucking company $2,000, but they're not going to pay them for 60 days, we step in and pay that trucking company $1,950 today and then it becomes our responsibility to collect the full amount from Anheuser-Busch 60 days from now. So factoring and lending are alike, but they're not the same thing. So prior to us buying this little factoring company, we were a cleanup project. I met Steve, got to know Steve. And if you just look at the underlying financials of factoring, the yields that you generate in factoring are significantly higher than almost any other form of lending. I think at the time, the yield on assets in advanced business capital, which what is what it was then called, was around 25%. So think about it. I mean, even in 2012, in a different interest rate environment, although frankly, we're going, you know, moving back to where we were pre-07 right now, I mean, a 25% yield's unheard of in banking. So you could just sit down and look at it and say, on a balance sheet perspective, if you think about the right and the left-hand side of the balance sheet, putting a factoring company in a bank is like, you know, it, it, it's, it turbocharges your net interest margin, your spreads get much wider, assuming you can do it safely and you can scale it. That's a very compelling opportunity. And so we went down that process and because we were new to control of the bank and we just got out from under regulatory orders, orders, we had to get permission from the FDIC to do this deal, which all the banking experts in and around this institution and our council were like, I'm not so sure, Aaron, that they're going to allow you for your very first opportunity to play offense to get into the financing of what we presume to be insolvent truckers, right? Like it just doesn't seem to ring true of what a bank is allowed to do. But I was able to get Steve and a guy named George Thorson, who's still with us. Steve has since retired, but still a very dear friend, um, to get in front of the FDIC and talk about this is the way we structure the deal. 
And, and when you understand the structure, the credit risk starts to look very different than us just going around and lending money to truckers, hoping that those truckers would in turn use that money to grow their business. And for whatever reason, providentially, the FDIC said, you know what, this seems like a good fit. We're not going to object to this. So that was great. But we had to go raise another $9 million to buy them. And you got to understand, we had raised $45 million to buy the bank. And I was kind of running out of friends to call uh, because we couldn't raise institutional capital. I was 33 years old, had never run a bank before. And so anyone who was an institutional investor was like, you fail. You're not even going to get in the door here for us to invest with you. But there were people in the community who knew me or had invested with Triumph in the old days or knew my mentors. And we were able to scrape together $9 million to buy advanced business capital. It actually took a lot more cash than that, but that's what we were short on the capital. And so, yeah, it was on Friday the 13th, 2012. I remember signing a wire for a $13 million premium, I think, could be off on that, but I think that's directly correct. That's what we had to pay the sellers over and above the assets, right? That was the premium they generated on the business. And then I think I authorized another wire of $45 million, which paid off Frost, who was the lender to this factoring company, because those assets were now coming on onto our balance sheet. And you got to understand, we were a, 200, a $210 million organization at the time. So we're talking about a significant portion of your balance sheet. And that deal, more than I could have ever foreseen at the time, changed everything. So that was the pivotal moment um, among several pivots in the, in the history of this business. But I would put that right up there at the top as the most pivotal moment. And just to give people some perspective on what that business has become, you've built it from being one that was buying, I think you said, $40 million a month when you bought it, to one that is buying over a billion dollars of invoices per month. Maybe talk a little bit about the process of building it. And then, you know, what are your, how are you thinking about the future? And is there, is there still a fair amount of runway for you guys? Yeah. And, and if I could, it probably helps people to understand just even in more context what it is. So when you think of trucking and you all, you know, people listening to this podcast probably think of large trucking companies like J.B. Hunt in their mind, you know, J.B. Hahn or C.H. Robinson or these trucks, the yellow roadways or Schneider, that's the orange trucks, all these trucks that people see going up and down the road, or at least the trailer they see going up and down the road. The first thing you need to understand is a significant portion of those trucks are being operated by small businesses. 90, there are 250,000 in our opinion, and there's no perfect data on this, but in the truckload market, there's 250,000-ish active companies, and they're called authorities because you get your authority from the government. 96% of those have four trucks or less. So all these big names you see getting pulled behind a truck, a lot of times the company does not own the truck and they don't own the driver. The driver is an independent contractor. The second thing that probably surprises people is just what these drivers get paid. Right now, it's $2.50 a mile. Like it's not, for to haul a load from Dallas to Chicago is about a $2,000 proposition. It's not $20,000. Like we're talking about small increments. And so what we do at Triumph, and there are other factoring companies who do this, we're not alone, is as I alluded to earlier, we buy the invoice the second the load shows up. 
And the average discount that we charge our truckers is one and a half percent. Okay, some are higher if they're really small, some are lower if they're really large. And so if you think about that, Visa charges Walmart 2% for every card swipe. So we charge less than a credit card processing fee to the trucker. And so we have over half of our client base, over 5,000 of our clients pay us less than $300 a month because they own one truck, they don't run that many loads, and we don't earn that much. You know, our fees 30 to $40 a load. So that's the what. You're talking about building a business that turns over every 36 days. Our portfolio turns about every 36 days because the standard in trucking is you pay the trucker in 30 days. Some people pay faster when they're desperate. Some people like Anheuser-Busch and others can pay you slower because they've got the market dominance to do it, but it's 36 days. And so it, you go out of business every 36 days, right? Like this is not like making a loan on a building at the corner of First and Main and five years from now you get paid off. Like, no, you're collecting out every 36 days. And so if you're going to grow this business, you've got to add new clients. And not all clients are created equal. A small trucker who owns one truck at any given point in a month will only have nine to $10,000 out to them. If we have more money than that out to them, they're either cheating on their driving logs or they're committing fraud because you just can't drive that much. And then we have some large clients who have three and 400 trucks. And of course, those are much larger you know, schedules of invoices we're buying on a daily basis. But in order to grow it, you had to invest in marketing. And you're marketing not to the sophisticated party, the C.H. Robinson, the J.B. Hunt, the Schneider, the Anheuser-Busch, the, you know, one of the largest actually um, uh, shippers out there is water is incredibly heavy to ship. So think about Dasani water like Americans. We can't drink it out of a pipe. Instead, we've got to put it on a truck in a bottle and drive it down the road. And it's very heavy. So one of our largest account debtors, which means people that our truckers haul for um, are the companies that move water or that manufacture water. We, we A tremendous amount of freight is spent on that. So in order to scale it, you're marketing to the small trucker. And so you have to come up with creative ideas and help that trucker with their biggest pain point. And for these guys, the biggest pain point, number one, is just working capital. Right, they struggle to wait 30 days to get paid because they got to fill that truck up with diesel. Diesel is 25% of their cost. And the second they finish run, they need to fill it up. The second thing they struggle with is they don't really have a back office. Right? Like it's you need somebody to be able to handle the submission of those documents to a sophisticated party with an ERP system and a portal and all these things. And some of these truckers, man, they're on the road driving. They're they're sophisticated people. You know, they're tech savvy because they live on the internet, you know, and truck stop to truck stop. But that's not exactly what they're well equipped to do to be submitting invoices and dealing with reconciliations and all the things they have to deal with. And so in a way, the factoring company is more than just a finance partner. We're their back office. We've almost become like an outsourced CFO. Generate the invoice on their behalf. We take the signed bill of lading. We submit it for them. We handle the collection process. So there's a lot of labor we're doing on behalf of the small truckers so that they don't have to add staff, which they can't afford to add staff to do that. And so the way you grow in factoring is I suppose like any business, you create a really good product. All these people talk, you know, truckers talk, they, they see each other. And, and so word of mouth matters. 
And then you try to figure out channel marketing of how you reach these people. And it's you can't spend big dollars on small truckers, right? Because they go in and out of business quickly and they don't generate enough revenue on a one-off basis to pay for some big you know, black tie event. Like that's not how you market to them. And we've hauled our barbecue trailer to truck stops and cooked for them. We go, we try to figure out where they're going and we try to figure out how to reach them through digital channels to market to them, load boards, other ways. And, and then, like I said, word of mouth really matters. I mean, if you're a company or a person who does what you say you will do consistently, that word gets around. And so that's how we've grown it from 40 million a month to uh, I think about a billion one a month right now. Thanks to Delupa for sponsoring this season of Compounders. Delupa scales the velocity of an investment team's idea generation by allowing analysts to spend less time locating and manually inputting meaningful disclosures into Excel. As someone who spends a lot of time updating models with data that some of the other major platforms, such as Bloomberg and Capital IQ, don't capture, I have seen firsthand how much time Delupa can save professional investors. Specifically, Delupa captures data from all company reported sources, including from footnotes, MDNAs, and investor presentations. Their data sheets also include gap to non-gap adjustments, guidance, and all company-specific KPIs. Each data point is auditable to the source for easy verification and accuracy. Delupa's Excel plugin can also update existing models for the latest quarter in just a single click. More bulge bracket banks and top-tier investment managers are trusting Delupa for assistance in initiating coverage, building and maintaining industry dashboards, and keeping models up to date. Please visit www.delupa.com compounders to learn more about how Delupa can help increase your team's speed to differentiated insight. And it appears that you're doing a fair amount of work for your partners, right? This is a value add service, right? There's a, there's a means of financing, there's a way of like surviving. What determines your pricing power? So you talk about one and a half percent in a, a charge versus a 2% visa charge. What determines your your pricing power? Because you it would it would it was, it would I guess appear to me that given all you're doing, like why couldn't it be two and a half percent? Is it because there's competitors out there who are willing to accept a lower yield? Yes, I mean it is it is a robust, fragmented, and competitive market to provide financing to truckers. There's about 400 factoring companies who are involved in transportation factoring. The top 20 of which we are one, we're the second largest, control 75% of the market. So it is a little top heavy. And that's that's been a more recent phenomenon in the last five years because the larger companies have been able to use technology to widen the advantage. Uh, but it is so competitive. I mean, that, and so truckers, all if you type in truck factoring, transportation factoring, sell my invoices, the competition to get on that first page of Google results is super competitive. So no, we can't just move rates by 50 basis points and presume that our truckers are going to stay with us. Every deal, every time it comes up for renewal is getting multiple quotes. Um, and so it's a robust market, which it should be, frankly. I mean, that's just like there's, you could, if you wanted to go get a home mortgage and you were to type that in, there'd be a thousand quotes, right? I mean, you're not going to get a thousand in trucking, but you'll certainly get enough to make an efficient market. And I think the market has gotten more and more efficient as just, you know, with technology, the internet, you know, people are able to push their quotes and where things are so that there's a lot more transparency for the market constituents than there were 10 years ago. 
And the interesting way you put it is that you're kind of out of business every 36 days, right? If you don't make, if you don't get those customers back, your loan book shrinks, your net interest margin, net interest margin dollars come down. What do you think leads to stickiness with the trucking customers? Is it the service you're providing? Is it the consistency? If there is so much, if there, if there is so many capital providers, what is it that makes them not shop around the next time they have a load? So their first and foremost sensitivity is getting paid on time in the manner that they need. And that's especially, it's true for all of them, but it's really true for those guys who have a five truck fleet. Because think about this, they've got four trucks besides the one they're driving scattered across the continental United States. And they got to fill up four trucks that night. All right, so that money has to get on a fuel card if that's how they ask us to pay them so that their drivers can use that fuel card at the pump so they can save money at the pump. If you miss getting money out the door, then you they can't fill up or you know a lot of these drivers don't have credit cards and they're employees. And so you're not going to ask an employee to put $300 of diesel on their credit card. And so then that driver misses a pickup time, which makes them miss a delivery time. So the most important thing is it's all about getting people paid. I mean, that you cannot fail. Our phone, as you get to the end of the day, the ACH or the wire deadline, our phones ring off the hook of people needing to know, wanting to know, are we getting funded today? I have to get funded today. So that's the first thing. Uh, way, way, way more important than pricing. Pricing matters because it's a competitive market. But if you can't pay people timely, and this is why, frankly, a competitor would struggle to come into the space because you could come in and undercut us on pricing, but you got to build the whole infrastructure to ingest the invoice, to structure the invoice in your system, to fund that person within 24 hours. And frankly, the gold standard is we try to fund people within an hour of the submission of the invoice. And we're talking about it never ends. Like it is a treadmill, as I alluded to earlier, it's not like making a commercial real estate loan and sitting back and waiting you know, and making sure the insurance is paid and the property taxes are paid. And in three to five years, I'm either going to get paid off or I'm going to foreclose on the asset. Like that's not how this works. It's a treadmill that runs 24 hours a day because trucks run 24 hours a day. So it's about paying people. Um, of course, customer service. When these people call and we talk to our clients multiple times a week, like it's not like a traditional lending relationship. Like they are talking frequently. Partly, they need to know that we're willing to still buy the invoices. We do more for them than just pay them. Like There are some unnamed companies, well-known companies, who we've had truckers haul for, that we've had to call those truckers and go, hey, we're no longer convinced that this company that you're hauling for can pay us in 30 days. And so we are not going to buy the invoice. You're welcome to haul for them. Be free but we're not going to buy the invoice from you. So you're going to have to collect from them in 30 days. And so in a way, we're not trying to be there. You know, we're not trying to run credit on their behalf. We're running credit on our behalf. But when we tell a, a customer, hey, we're not going to buy any more of this company's invoice because we're a little bit nervous about its financial position, then that's a good indication that our trucker probably should think long and hard whether they want to continue hauling for that person. So there's that level of service. And then the third thing that moves people is we aggregate purchasing power on their behalf. Most of the large factoring companies have fuel programs and those fuel programs allow 
companies who do business with us or other leading factoring companies to save money at the pump and actually levels the playing field between what a small trucker would have to pay at the pump and a very large fleet. And so if you can aggregate purchasing power on their behalf, then that offsets some of the fees they pay us. So those are the three things, pay people on time, customer service, you know, help them manage credit risk and then aggregate purchasing power. That's what they're looking for. And I want to get in also to your cost of funds in, in a minute, but I also want to understand it, it appears that to have this factoring business housed within a bank where you can have low cost deposits is an, you know, just incredible advantage and, and leads to what, you know, what would, what are industry leading net interest margins. Why isn't this like a very, very right place for other banks to try to copy this model and try to get that spread and, you know, whatever erode some of the, the share gains that you've made? How, what have you seen there? And, and why is it hard, you think, for other banks to, to try to copy what you guys have done? Because you can't dip your toe in it. Like if I wanted to stand up a new lending vertical, I could go hire one person, right? If we weren't in equipment finance, and I just wanted to dip my toe. I could go hire a very smart, experienced, distinguished equipment finance lender, and we could service those loans on our existing core, you know, core system. Same in commercial real estate. Like I just need to go hire the person who makes sure we close the loan well, and we get title insurance, certificate of casualty insurance, and property taxes paid, and you're kind of off to the races. And it's you know, it's the tortoise race, right? You don't really shouldn't do anything. You should just sit back and collect payments. But if you're going to get into accounts receivable financing for small truckers that turn every 36 days, you're going to have to have three, five, seven, 10 people and a core system stood up that can allow you to ingest those invoices, pay them, these people get the money out the door in an hour and collect from a wide variety of account debtors. So it's just you have to be committed to it. You got to be willing to make the investment or be willing. I mean, it's a little bit like try and pay, right? You got to gird your loins to be willing to take a time of pain in order for a longer term gain. And, and so I just don't think, A, I don't think most bankers think about providing financing to the trucking industry as an attractive place to be. Number two is to do it you have to full on commit. There's no dip your toe in. You got to get on that diving board. You got to hire the people, build the system, and then jump off. And so that's just counterintuitive to the way many bankers think. They're, they just, you know, they prefer to kind of ease into things. And this is just not a business that suits itself well for that. You know, the other end of that spread is the low cost of funds. And as I was looking at this company the for the first time, I think that you know how low your 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 funding is was really impressive to me. Maybe you can talk a little bit about the history of your funding costs and um, you know maybe why you've been able to maintain such low funding costs over time. And of course, obviously, why that you know for people who don't spend a lot of time in banking, help them understand why that leads to such high high spreads for you guys. Yeah. Well, I mean, I think the first thing, assuming not everyone who listens to this podcast is a financial expert, you, you need to understand or doesn't underwrite banks for a living, that our balance sheet is the opposite of your balance sheet. In other words, deposits are your assets, they're my liabilities, right? I got to go buy money from somebody in order to turn around and lend it out. I mean, that frankly, that's what banking is. We buy money and sell money. We buy money from depositors. We sell money to borrowers. 
So for the last 14 years, it really hasn't mattered who you bought your money from. It didn't matter if you had a relationship with them or not. The Fed had moved rates so low that I could go wholesale fund this business. And it was, you know, you wouldn't see any marginal cost of funds difference. And so the wholesale funding is just, it's like, what is it overnight, right? I could go borrow overnight from the Federal Home Loan Bank. I could buy brokered CDs. You know, I could just turn up my CD rate just a little bit and money would fly in this place. And so that's good. I mean, it works. That's the beauty of being a bank is it's access to the most liquid funding source on earth. FDIC insured deposits will come in $250,000 at a time, even if they think you're a lousy bank and don't know where you are, right? But that's also dangerous because deposits that come in like that will leave you the second you are no longer the highest rate in town. And so in the early days of Triumph, again, we were starting not just at ground zero, but probably worse than zero. And we had no branch network. The whole bank was funded by CDs and money markets, which just meant you were paying top of the market. Um, and so starting in 2013, after we bought the factoring company, and now we're generating all this income, the left-hand side of the balance sheet looks beautiful, right? Now we had to go fix the right-hand side of the balance sheet of how do we get our liabilities to be more predictable, more consistent? And so the gold standard in banking, and frankly, most banks in, in most economic scenarios, more of the valuation premium for a bank comes from the right-hand side of the balance sheet than the left-hand side of the balance sheet, right? Just because it's harder to replicate the right-hand side, the deposit, the management of liabilities, relationship banking. And so we needed to figure out a way to start building relationships with our depositors so they wouldn't leave us the first time someone paid a higher rate. And we went about it two ways. And I'm not saying these are the right ways. Uh, they were the ways we knew at the time. Number one, go to rural markets, secondary markets, where there's excess deposits versus loans. You know, in most, and I'm generalizing, but in most rural markets, people are more conservative on the borrowing side. There's not a lot of commercial growth. And so there's an excess of deposits. There's an imbalance of deposits versus loans. And so banks in those rural markets generally have a really good funding structure, but they always struggle to find loans to deploy that liquidity so they can earn a spread. We, going back to the acquisition of our factoring company, certainly had that engine on the left-hand side of the balance sheet. We could generate assets with the best of them, but we didn't have the low cost of funds. So that was the first thing. Now, the problem with that is number one, you got to get over the cultural things. You need to, these people in these branches, these communities, these team members, they need to feel like they're cared for, that they're not just a funding mechanism, but that you care about them succeeding in their local communities. And that requires effort, right? I mean, I grew up in a small town, so I can speak the language. My family was in the agricultural business, but I live in Dallas. And so, I, you know, we can't pretend that the things I think about every day are the things they think about every day. And so how do we run the institution to be sensitive to what our depositors and our bank customers need in those rural markets? The second problem you run into is these are non-growth markets. I mean, there are some markets where we have 100% market share. Well, what are you going to do, right? If you're growing the asset side of the balance sheet, from where will the other deposits come? You're not going to get them by getting more deposits out of a market where you already have 80% market penetration. So but we did that. And that created a significant low cost of funds. We have almost 60 branches, many of them in rural markets. We have great people who know their customers, 
And these people are loyal to us. That doesn't mean we don't have to move rates when rates move, but we don't have to move in step with the Fed, right? There's deposit beta for us doesn't have to be as high as if we were wholesale funded because of the relationship part of the business. The second thing we had to do was figure out how do we get commercial customers who saw us as a person to borrow from or as a bank to borrow from, how do we get them to leave their deposits with us? Well, you got to create a treasury management solution that allows the controller or the CFO of a small and mid-sized company to see their funds, to understand where they are, and the reporting and all the things they need. And that required investment. That was seven figures, multiple seven figures of investment to build that. And you had to go hire a team whose job it is not to sell money to these people, not to give them loans, but to buy their money. How do we hold their money on their behalf in a way that's successful? And so we did both of those things. And we started doing that in 2013. And we knew that one day it would serve us well. We had no idea it would take almost 10 years. Right? We thought rates would move well before this time, but because you can't predict the future, you should prepare for it. And you know that interest rates are cyclical and that the, all the work we've done would help us when rates started to move. And the third thing we did, think about rural branches, building commercial deposit gathering. The third thing we did, and this is you know antithetical to most bankers, especially publicly traded bankers, is we chose not to grow our balance sheet. And if you're not just in love with getting bigger, you don't stress your funding. You know, there are banks right now who have grown, 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 and their funding is stressed. Like they don't have their incremental cost of funds is four and a half percent. And if Fed raises rates again, it's going to be 4.75. Well, if that's your cost of funds, think about where you have to lend money in order to make money on the incremental volume. You're, I mean, you're talking about 9% real estate loans. And I think we're going to see that. But for those of us who are willing to build a, a capital, a structure, that we weren't just in love with growth. We wanted to be the best in the world at a few things, but we were content not to just grow. That allowed us not to strain our funding base. And so as a result, our cost of funds is 28 basis points. Now, to just say that alone, you also have to remember we have to maintain a branch network and all the employees that go with that. So there's embedded costs in there. But no doubt, our cost of funds versus if you're a commercial finance company who's borrowing from a large bank, it's a tremendous advantage to us and it's taken us, but it didn't happen overnight, right? That was a decade of intentional investing to get there. And we're going to talk about TPay in a second, but I want to understand your how you allocate your time because you've got a lot going on. So you have a traditional bank, which you just described, you have a factoring business and you have a growing payments business that you're responsible for. How have you settled on dividing your time and delegating to make sure you aren't stretched too thin? Yeah, I'm a, I, I have been from, you know, I became a CEO at 32. And one of the things that I never struggled with early on was delegate. I just, my view is if I'm playing shortstop and you're playing third, if ground balls hit your way, you feel that ground ball. I'm not going to try to run over and get in front of you. Like if I don't trust you to play third, then I need to get a different third baseman. And so we have great teammates. So, I mean, I, all of those three lines of business have a business unit lead. 
And I spend time with all of them. I don't know. I mean, in one week, it might be more Triumph. Hey, another week, it might be more Triumph, which is our factoring business. Another week, we might be out visiting customers and branches at TVK Bank. It's, you know, it's probably slightly shaded more towards the transportation businesses and tri Triumph Pay just because it's our growth business and it, it's the younger, less mature business versus the other things we do. Uh, but we touch all of them. And, and so, you know, I, I would not, there's no, I couldn't give you a statistical over the course of a year, like that there's a material difference between the three. Got it. And so let's, let's jump into Triumph Pay. Um, I've heard a lot about it. Um, and um, it's, it's probably one of the more compelling things you ever hear from a smaller cap bank. So maybe, maybe people who haven't heard the pitch about uh, Triumph Pay, Tell us a little bit about what it is and, and what problems you're trying to solve. Yeah. Well, I would say think about going to the grocery store 30 or 40 years ago with your grandparents. So you go through the checkout line, you buy all, you know, everything gets rung up and then you owe $85.26. And at that point, if your grandmother was anything like mine, you put her 80 pound purse up on the up on the you know conveyor belt, fishes out a checkbook and proceeds to by hand write out a check, sign the check, gives it to the cashier who then slides the check in the bottom of the drawer. And then we leave with the groceries. And the problem for the grocery store is they won't know for in those days for seven to 10 days whether that check was good. Right. That check had to be taken in a money bag by an employee to their bank where then it got deposited. And then their bank would issue a, a draft to my grandmother's bank. And only if she had the funds in her account would they then remit funds back. And so we're talking we've already eaten all the groceries that were bought before the grocery store ever really knew if they had gotten paid. Was it a hot check? Was it a fraudulent check? Is there something wrong with it? Well, how payments are made in trucking is not materially different than what I just described to you. Now, look, we use ACH over checks. Yes. But there is no instantaneous source of truth. Now, think about when you go to a grocery store. When you go to a grocery store, either through the wave of your phone or the wave of a piece of plastic, in milliseconds, everyone knows, did you have the money? And if you had the money, then we're going to get the money. And moreover than that, everyone in the value chain, the merchant who sold you the things, the issuing bank who issued the card to your behalf, the merchant bank, the merchant acquirer, everyone in the payments network knows in milliseconds exactly what they're going to get. right? And that whole transaction in one second, for roughly 2% of whatever you just bought, that money gets divided up between all those players. And the difference between those two things I just described to you is the use of structured data. Now, structured data is just data that lives in ones and zeros, right? It's the difference between emailing someone an Excel spreadsheet where I can get in there and manipulate things and see the underlying source code to emailing them a PDF of a model where I just, all I see is something on a file. And for me to go in and manipulate the data, I have to restructure that into a format that I can actually move it around. Like a picture of something is hard to move around. And so years ago, we started building OCR technology, optical character recognition, where you would teach 
Adobe and other programs to read the document, whether it's a bill of lading that a trucker signs or a receipt from a grocery store, and you would teach it to read the document. And the reason you do that is because you're trying to structure the data back into a way that I can control it, manipulate it, do whatever I need to do in my own account accounting process. But now think about how a credit card network works. What Visa is doing, what Amex is doing, what Discover is doing, what MasterCard is doing is creating an invisible tollway where ones and zeros are allowed to be exchanged by everyone in that payment cycle to know exactly how much is being paid, to whom it's being paid, and what are all the set off, you know, the credits, all the things that happened there. It never lived in unstructured format. It stayed structured the whole time. So now let's talk about trucking. Any load that gets moved in the United States by a for hire trucker starts off in the most pristine format available. It starts off in the warehouse management system of some shipper. So let's just pick Nike shoes, right? Nike's got a distribution facility, let's just say in Laredo, right? And so they know and through all their complex systems that they need to get those shoes to Chicago, to another distribution facility where they'll get pushed out to a bunch of stores. So in the warehouse management system of Nike, it says this load needs to move from here to here. Now, Nike has a contract with a very large freight broker. Let's just pick one, J.B. Hunt. So now J.B. Hunt knows, gets communication from Nike, this load that is here needs to go from Laredo to Chicago. It lives as structured data in J.B. Hunt's transportation management system, right? They're managing millions of loads a day all over the country, probably for them all over the world. So now they don't have their own driver to haul that load. They need to go find someone to haul that load. So they use various channels to go out and find a driver who just so happens to be in Laredo, who's willing to go to Chicago. And they say, look, we will pay you $2 a mile to haul this load from Laredo to Chicago. Great, I'll do it. So they send that to the trucker, right? The information that the trucker needs. The trucker then drives from Laredo to Chicago. And generally speaking, he has a he or she has a physical bill of lading, right? This is what I brought you. There's this many boxes of shoes in this trailer. And when he or she gets to the warehouse, the consignee, the receiver of these goods, signs the bill of lading. Hey, congrats, you know, it, it arrived on time, not on time, but it arrived and all the stuff's here. And then that trucker takes a picture of this bill of lading that one, at one once upon a time was structured in perfectly pristine ones and zeros living inside of a system. And they take a picture of it and they send it to their factoring company. Now their factoring company, who's agreeing to pay them in an hour, has to ingest that bill of lading and take this picture and turn it back into ones and zeros because a factoring company, whether it's us or someone else, has their own factor management system. And we're not allowed to buy invoices until we structure the data and put it into our system of record. So then we have to take the time to take that picture and turn it into ones and zeros. And then we decide to buy the invoice. So now we pay the trucker. So the trucker's out of the equation. But now, what we generally do is we turn around and email that invoice back to unstructured data, back to JB Hunt and say, hey, we bought the invoice. It was delivered. 
Here's the proof of delivery. And then someone at JB Hunt has to take that email and restructure the data one more time to make sure it matches what lives in their system of record. And so we took data that was perfect and pristine and we took it to a bill of lading that's probably coffee stained and all, you know, all those things. And we took a picture of that. We sent it to a factoring company who restructured it, unstructured it and sent it back. Like that's crazy. Now think about if we used a credit card type network, what if the factoring company, the trucker, JB Hunt, and Nike all had access to structured data. And instead of when that bill of lading got signed, we just appended it to this ones and zeros that were all being communicated through APIs, right? These APIs that allow disparate systems to talk to one another. Well, if we do that, that's the modern day credit card now. It's exactly what it looks like. And so that is a sea change, right? The amount of friction you're removing on these $2,000 invoices is you know, 15 to $25. That doesn't sound like much until you think about companies who do millions of loads a year and it starts to add up. And not only does it make it simpler, it also reduces fraud because if I'm just sending you a picture of a bill of lading, I can print a bill of lading. I can fake a signature on it. And then somebody has to go back and figure out why doesn't this match back to my system? And that is a real problem for both factors and freight brokers. So that's what it does. It essentially moves the payment system into the 21st century and allows parties to communicate through using APIs versus emails and pictures being texted or submitted into portals. So you sold me on it, but when you initially went into the boardroom and said, hey, I've got this payments business that should have some synergies with the factoring business, but I'm not exactly sure what the ROI is going to be or the MPV is going to be. How did that conversation go and and how did you convince the board that this was worth taking a pretty significant swing at? Yeah. So the first thing is, let me just be clear. There is, it was not I, it was we. Everything I just told you, it's not like I dreamed that up all by myself. Like that is a collaborative effort of some really intelligent people um, that's built over a long period of time. Um, look, I think the a conversation like that with a board or investors or whomever must be built around trust. And trust is a complex word, right? Like I trust you, I don't trust you. Well, what is trust built on? It's built on, in my opinion, two C words, character and competency. So if I had gone into the board, like if I wanted to have brain surgery, right? Um, I have some dear friends who I know their character is amazing, but I would never let them do brain surgery on me because that's not their competency. But if on the other hand, someone wants me to invest in a deal, or in this case, if the board is being asked to support a new initiative that we know for the short term is going to um, hurt profitability, then I needed two things when we when I walked in that boardroom. And again, it wasn't just I, it was me. Wasn't just me by myself in there. Like this is not a, a personality-driven organization. It's a collaborative executive team. So when we went in there, number one, we had to have demonstrated competence over a period of years. When we had made calls, we had generally been right. We have certainly got some things wrong, but there's a lot of you could point to of making the right decision over long periods of time. 
The second thing was the board had to trust our character. Was there something about what we were asking to do that was just for the benefit of management, right? Like, was it, was we some, was there a misalignment of incentives with what our fiduciary duty is, which is to create lot value over the long term, to compound capital, the Warren Buffett way of thinking of doing something that forget what is happening in the next 12 months. Let's talk about the next 12 years. And so we laid it out for him like, this does not exist. It should exist. Trucking is 8% of gross domestic product. We know the pain points in the industry. We don't know what it will take. We don't know exactly how much it will take. We don't know exactly how long it will take to deliver this at scale and get the market to buy into it. And I'm sure things will emerge and competitors will emerge, but we think this is a great call. We think the value proposition for this is asymmetric to anything else we can do in the bank. We think it's a moat style business. Payment networks are incredibly powerful. Just look at how they trade. Um, we want to make this bet. And so I think, you know, this is the benefit of a founder led organization is I, there are board members who've been around who just like, they know I have a ton of skin in the game, right? Like this isn't some idea that if it didn't work out, wasn't going to hurt me. And that this thing, you know, we've, we've, I've lived, slipped, eaten, triumphed since March 5th, 2006, when it started, right? When it was just me and a laptop. But that wouldn't alone wasn't enough. We had a group of really intelligent people who were like, yeah, we've studied this issue. It is going to cause short-term pain um, because we're going to have to make investments. But the long-term value proposition is right. And we make enough money in the rest of the business that we're not going to be beholden to share. We don't have to go delude ourselves by raising capital to do this. And that's that's a big thing. And so that was how it went. And so maybe then help me frame the opportunity in payments. You discussed getting to about $75 billion in volume, um, gets you somewhere near $100 million in revenue. Um, and I guess profitability is kind of TBD. But let's just say, for argument's sake, 25% EBITDA margins, like some other smaller payments companies can get to. That seems like a lot of investment and time to generate somewhere near 25 million in EBITDA. What is that analysis, that back of the envelope, you know, kind of trying to figure out what the what the opportunity is here? What, what is that missing, do you think? Yeah. Well, if this only is a 25% EBITDA margin business at scale, that's a failure, right? It would not have been, it would have not have been worth the work. I mean, a SaaS business or a payments network business should operate at a 70 to 80% gross margin at scale, right? Like, so it's, we're, we're talking about something very different because we don't think a hundred billion or 75 billion is the end game. And frankly, what we're learning right now, we're monetizing this at a rate where I think the revenue target shows up before the volume target. One of the big things in this that I didn't foresee at the time is the fraud mitigation. Um, Last year, we made $23 billion in payments at Triumph Pay. $12 billion of those, roughly, talking in rough numbers, went to carriers. In other words, straight to the trucker. The others would have gone to factory companies, okay? So follow that logic. Of that, over $300 million would have been misdirected but for Triumph Pay. In other words, we helped identify either a fraud or a problem of where that money would have gone. Now, I'm here to tell you, most of that money would have never made its way back home, right? It would have disappeared because fraud is rampant. And so we're not doing that for free. 
right? Like that's, that's a value proposition to the network. That's not even something that has shown up in our financials. That's something we're talking about with customers now. Like, hey, do you like making sure you pay the right person? Because if so, we can help with that. So A, I think 25% EBITDA margin is a waypoint on a journey. As dimensioning the whole market, man, that, that's a really hard thing to say. What I would tell you is if you look at brokered freight and you call that $135 billion right now, it's, you know, it, depend, it just moves around based upon the market. And you look at shipper freight, which would be just shippers going directly to carriers, that's $250 billion. So let's just roughly say it's a $400 billion for hire market. Try and pay has a role to play in much of that. I don't, I'm not naive enough to think it's all of that. But think about Visa. Where do you go that you don't see a point of sale terminal that has Visa, MasterCard, Discover, Amex? Why? Because everyone wins. Nobody benefits from friction. Right? This would be one thing if only one side of the network was benefiting, if only the truckers were benefiting, only the factoring companies, or only the shippers or the brokers. But nobody benefits from friction. Nobody benefits from fraud. And so if the value proposition is to help eliminate that, to the extent that what they save in friction and fraud is less than they pay us, well, I mean, that's an incredibly defensible business model, right? Incredibly defensible because these parties need a way to interact. With Freight brokers love using technology to procure capacity from small truckers. And why do they like that? Because freight brokerage is not an asset intensive business, right? You need a phone and a computer and you need a client and then you need to go find someone to cover that load. If it were, you know, if every trucking company was large and had lots of trucks, you really wouldn't need this because there'd be a finite ecosystem of merchant. Because remember, in our scenario, we, we went back to the grocery store scenario. In that scenario, the grocer is the merchant to you, right? You are buying something from them. That gets flipped in a trucking, in, a, in our payments network. The merchant is the trucker. The merchant, in many ways, is the least sophisticated person in the entire value chain. They're certainly the least capitalized. Whereas if you go into Walmart, they're the merchant, you're the buyer of goods. Well, Walmart's very well capitalized and very sophisticated. Well, now your, your merchants in our payments network are the smallest. They're the ones who have the outlay of capital first, right? Because they got to go move the goods. They're the least sophisticated. And so this is incredibly powerful as these large technology-driven freight brokers procure capacity from this ever-changing source, this pool of freight capacity, giving them a way to communicate with that capacity using structured data and get data back from them in a structured format and figure out who the fraudsters are who are trying to imitate like they're real carriers. I mean, that it's a winning proposition. Like, here's the thing. This is going to happen in truck. Now, you can debate, investors can debate whether it's us or someone else. Fine. This will not, the way it is done right now is not the way it will be done five years from now, 10 years from now. It just, it makes, it makes no sense. And the barrier to it is it's an incredibly invasive um, process for Triumph Pay or anything like Triumph Pay to come in and handle accounts payable for a large trucking company who pays 70,000 truckers, $700 million a year. I mean, that's invasive. Right. And so there's a lot of trust that has to be built. Of, we're capable of doing this. We're a publicly traded bank. 
You can trust us. Here's our statement of financial condition. Here's how we work. Here's the fiduciary responsibilities we will show you versus, you know, via your data, which is important to you. Like you got to overcome a lot of objections, but at the end of it, they know, the market knows that nobody is doing this perfectly because just the inefficiencies between factors and carriers and truckers, like we should not have $25 of friction around a $2,000 invoice. We just shouldn't. I mean, no, again, nobody wins. So, you know, that, that's, that's what it is. This will happen. We very much intend to be the, the, the party that makes it happen. We have a compelling lead. Um, and again, I think it, it just benefits everyone. It benefits factoring companies, it benefits carriers, it benefits shippers, it benefits brokers. And so we're just going to stay the course and until we have, you know, I think there's probably an inflection point coming with a few more large brokers joining the system. And now it's like, guys, this is just kind of the way people get paid. It's just like, you know, now you go to your, I went to my son's wrestling tournament this weekend and they don't accept cash yeah. at the front desk, right? They don't accept, they don't want $5. They want a, a card swipe. Why? Because it just is a whole lot easier. Nobody has to track the cash. So I think the same thing happens. And so you're building a two-sided market with kind of like fleets and brokers on one side and the drivers on the other side. Is, is it more, I mean, do you really need to get those big brokers on first and for, for that to really work? Um, and, and then secondly, I, I, I just, I'm curious if I'm a competitive factoring company, don't I worry about, don't I, don't I have some hesitation about working with TPay given that you are directly competing with them in the factory business? So maybe talk yeah. about like trying to build that all the constituents to the ecosystem and um, you know, kind of where you're prioritizing and, and how do you how do you get past that concern that another factoring company might have? Yeah, great. So on the first side, uh, the first question, yes, the large payors, be they shippers or freight brokers, are what move the needle because the top 30 or so freight brokers do 40% of the volume in the entire market. So you could focus on the long tail, the small freight brokers, but that's not going to move the needle. You need the large freight brokers because there'll be a fast follow once one of them starts doing it. If like we get, whenever we get ready to onboard a new large freight broker, when they give us a dump of all the carriers they've paid over the last year, we've generally paid 95% of their carriers. So it's it's a powerful thing to them, right? That, hey, all of these people and their factoring companies are very used to getting paid by TriPay. This is not a new thing to them. It may be a new thing to you as the payor, but the payee, your merchant, is more than happy to get paid by TriPay. So that's why getting the large ones matters because they have such a reach. Going to the second question, which is, well, gosh, I think Triumph is just going to use Triumph Pay to get my data and then come after my factoring business. I can understand why people think that, but I think I can also give you some reasons why that would never happen. First of all, we already have the data, right? I already know who every carrier almost uses as a factoring company because we make those payments on behalf of the freight broker. So if the freight broker has a carrier hauling and I pay another factoring company, I know that carrier goes with that factoring company. So whether or not you sign up with Triumph Pay, I already know who your carriers are that you service because I work for the payors. And I've had that data for years and I've never used it to our advantage, nor will I use it again, or nor will I use it in the future. The second thing, 
We are 15% of the factory market, i.e. Triumph. We don't need, nor will we materially grow from there. And the reason is there's a valuation difference between having the biggest factoring company and the most robust payments network. And they're not even close. Payments networks trade at entirely different multiples. And so if I took 100 million plus of goodwill that I've created to build the payments network, just for the purpose of going after factoring companies, which would destroy the very payments network I was trying to build, that would be the most short-sighted victory in history. Right? I would destroy more market value than I could ever put back into the network. And look, go look at our annual reports or our, um, our quarterly shareholder letters. Like We're saying this to investors. Like We do not intend to grow our factoring business. We want to get more efficient. And sure, we're going to grow if the industry grows. But most of these large factoring companies are now my clients. And so, look, if a, the opportunity, if a customer's out there for a competitive bid, like we're going to be part of the competition, but we're not, I mean, that it would just, it would ruin everything we've spent two years talking about and hundreds of millions of dollars of investment to win what? 10% more market share? Like that, again, our stock price, it, it would, it would hurt, um, far more than it would help. And so what I would tell a factoring company is, look, I use JP Morgan Chase for investment banking services for Triumph, right? For Triumph Financial. They do things for us. I also happen to compete with them for retail customers where they have a branch. I don't worry about the fact of what I do with them in investment banking is going to have any effect on their ability to compete with me for just run-of-the-mill banking customers. It's the same thing. Triumph Pay is a service and frankly, who should be the most happy about it are the small factoring companies because we're leveling the playing field for them. We're giving them a technology solution. And for us to achieve our goals, for Triumph Pay to generate not just 100 million in revenue, but 200, 300, 400, we need the factoring industry to grow. Like that's what I need. I need more loads to get factored rather than less. And we can do quick pays on behalf of freight brokers and you know, however people want to get paid but we want to see the industry grow. We want to see it get more efficient, not just altruistically. I mean, sure, I, I know a lot of these people and I like them, but that's my job as the CEO here is how do we compound the value of our investment? And the way we do that is we create a robust payments network. And you don't create a robust payments network if you undermine one of the key constituencies. So it would be not in our, not only do you have our word, I think we've, you know, go back to that trust word. We've got a lot of years of being people of our word in a very public format. Number two, it's not in our economic self-interest to do so. And of course, you mentioned that payment companies often go for very healthy multiples, especially relative to kind of like financials. So, um, you know, I assume that that a scale try and pay would be attractive to a payment strategic or be interesting as a company that, you know, could be spun off on its own. I mean, are you specifically building Triumph Pay with that in mind, like some kind of transaction? Or in reality, are there a lot of synergies between the factoring businesses, the business and, and Triumph Pay that it's almost so synergistic that it would be kind of silly to separate them? I don't know if the greatest synergy exists between the factoring business and Triumph Pay, I, I think they're on opposite sides of a network. Probably the best synergy is the float it generates for the bank. 
going back to what we were talking about earlier, the timing difference in the payments we make, I mean, for the first quarter ever in the fourth quarter, try and pay was self-funded because you generate float in that three to five day window of when you draft funds and when you pay funds. So the synergy is maybe more for the bank. As to what happens with try and pay, man, there's a thousand things that could happen. My job is to run the business with excellence. We're not going to have our heads turned by some offer with a little bit of premium in the short term, because if we can do this for a $400 billion market, if we become synonymous with it, like Xerox is synonymous with copy machines or Kleenex is synonymous with tissues, if we can do that and deliver this value to the market, the value of that is, uh, you know, it's not something somebody's going to pay you for now, right? It's appropriately being discounted by how much do they believe in us? Um, we believe in us. That's why we're buying shares, right? Like we can see the pathway. It's not going to be tomorrow. It's not even going to be next year that, that you know, we get the entire promises fulfilled, but we can see the incremental steps. And so we're going to ignore the short-term noise. We're going to make no promises about the long-term other than our job is to compound capital for ourselves and our investors. And we have seized upon, in my opinion, a, a the best untapped market to go do something transformative that isn't just consuming your balance sheet. We don't have to grow our balance sheet to do this. It's a highly capital efficient business. So this is not like you know, when a lot of banks talk about tech, they're just talking about building a cool user interface that sits over the top of legacy tech. Like this is its own ecosystem that is totally been built from the ground up to allow parties to communicate with one another. Like th this, is, this is so different than a buy now, pay later, cool user interface that lets people borrow money you know, when times are good and then shuts down when times are bad, which is the exact opposite of what you should be doing. So um, cap returns drive capital. Like I'm not worried about the multiple, the sum of the parts, you know, like there are people who sit in Wall Street, other places who can build their models and do all that. Our job is to be profitable, to steward capital well. And if, as we believe we are, we're on the, the cusp of doing something that we think can create a lot of value, then I'm going to buy back the stock I can at reasonable prices because for my long-term investors, me included, that's an opportunity to do what capitalism was created to do, solve a problem for the benefit of everyone. And if you're the person who can solve that problem at scale, then you get rewarded for that. And you mentioned the buyback a couple of times in that in that response. What, what's interesting about this bank is that you've been using some less conventional methods to shrink the share count. There was a Dutch tender last year, uh, which we're, we love, but you know used pretty rarely. Um, now you have an accelerated share repurchase or ASR. What's I mean, you have a lot of different needs for capital in terms of what you're you're you got a factoring business, you have building T pay. Where, you know, where why has buying back stock been such a big part of that recently? Because I don't have the need for capital, right? That's the thing. I'm not trying to grow. I don't want to be a $10 billion bank or a $15 billion bank. Sure, I and the C suite could pay ourselves more, right? There's a high R squared correlation between the asset size of the bank and what the executives get paid. But that is a red herring for us. I think like you, 
this whole idea that you have to get big to win in banking is crazy. I sit on the board of a bank my family's part of that's a $150 million bank that's averaged on a tax adjusted, it's an, it's an S corp, but on a tax adjusted basis, a 1.6 ROA for going on 25 years. Why? Because the size of the institution is tailored to the people running it. Like there is a sweet spot in what we're doing that I know my senior leaders, I know most of the rank and file, not everybody. And if you grow, you're just adding people and adding layers. And that may work for some people, like you get to a certain scale, but we are at the size we need to be. I mean, we generate, you know, 400 million in revenue. Like you can do a lot of things with that. So number one, I don't need capital because I'm going to grow. Now you give us the opportunity to grow, like in this market, we've set out of the commercial real estate market for three years. We're about to underwrite some loans. Why? Because this is what you wait for. This reminds me of 2010 when we were quoting undeveloped real estate loans at 11%, right? Like we are willing to not grow a business and keep really talented people around for an opportunity like this, but it's still not going to just blow up our balance sheet. Like that's, that just doesn't make sense. So that's number one. Number two, try and pay if it's done like it's supposed to be, that that growth, the, the main engine of our growth is fee income driven growth. So it doesn't consume capital. So I'm not paying a dividend because that's not tax efficient. And this is, we believe there's a parabolic opportunity at the back end of this. You know, whether we're right or we're wrong, we'll all find out. But this is not like every year, you know, 3% incremental growth. Like that's not our story. So that being the case, you could either go out and buy someone or buy something. And we look at those opportunities. The great thing is that this new interest rate environment has taken a lot of these companies that were VC backed, that were really solutions in search of a problem, right? So they've never been able to scale. Um, like they're going to have to do something. Well, that's great. I don't have to do something. We've got nearly a 250 million of excess capital or 200 million after we complete this ASR. And we're going to, you know, we'll earn... Let read the street between 50 and 75 million of net income this year. And we're not going to grow the balance sheet materially. So we want to be thoughtful. We're not market timers. So I mean, we're not going to time everything perfectly. But if we think that shares are trading below the intrinsic value of the organization, especially in light of what the journey we see with TriPay, then why what what else should we be doing with that capital other than reducing the share count on behalf of the long-term shareholders? So at 130 bucks a share, like we were last year, it didn't make sense. But where we trade now, you know, it's, it, and we're not doing it all at once, right? We, we tried the tender. It's funny, you know, 58, $23 million, and then it traded down to 48. I mean, it's just, it's, it's interesting to me, you know, how the sausage is made in the markets. It's not my job to figure that out. It's my job just to run the business. But you should expect we will be in the market almost at all times right now. And as shares come back to us on weaker days, we're just going to keep vacuuming them up. And it's like one of those things, you fill a lot of potholes, you know, going down the road, you don't notice any one of them, but you look up after the end of a year and you're like, wow, you know, we covered some ground there. And that's A, how I think you build TriPay and B, how I think you efficiently steward capital back to shareholders. And I probably have 10 questions that we didn't get to, um, but I think we've covered a lot of ground. So I think we're going to finish with our favorite question. And um, I think we've covered a lot of it, but 
What what do you think is the most misunderstood or underappreciated aspect of of this bank and 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 maybe it's a factoring business? What 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 do you think people really when they come to 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 look at this company they misunderstand or underappreciate? They misunderstand or they underappreciate. I don't know that they misunderstand it. They underappreciate that trucking is eight percent of gross domestic product by state. In 36 states, truckers are the largest category of employment. The small trucker is not going away, as has been predicted for a decade or two decades. They are not going away. They must get paid. The way we pay them now is leaving money on the table for everyone involved. Somebody needs to solve this. Triumph has spent since... January the 13th, 2012, figuring out how truckers get paid. We've seen everything. We've made every mistake. We've seen good times. We've seen lean times. And as a result of that hard-earned tuition of almost 10 years of it and billions, tens of billions of dollars of payments, we have an idea that we rolled out to the market a couple of years ago that did $23 billion in payments this last year. And a billion of those were conforming transactions, which are essentially like credit card swipes. We went from zero to a billion in 364 days. Like I know investors see the expense ramp and they wanna see the EBITDA margin improvement. And I would want to do the same thing, but I'm putting staking my credibility on two years from now, three years from now, We're going to look back at this podcast and others or our shareholder letter and say, we were trying to tell you. We were trying to tell you that we weren't setting money on fire, that we had an idea, we had a captive market, we had a lead, and we were going to go win. If you believe, you should buy. If you don't, you should sell. We're already overvalued, right? If try and pay is worth nothing, where are we trade over two times tangible book? Why would you own our stock, right? You just got to decide where you fall in that spectrum. And, and that's the big question to answer. I mean, you can look back at a lot of years of our factoring business and that's going to be profitable. It's cyclical. You know, we're exposed to what the market does. Our community banking business is run very safely, soundly trying to generate deposits. It's, you've got this call option on Triumph Pay and you just need to decide as an investor or an observer or whatever, you know, you may be, are we the people to do it and does the market want it? And I think the answer to both of those, I know the market wants it. Are we the people to do it? Well, we've got $23 billion behind us, you know, in last year that says we are. We just got to go keep doing it. Well, I know that I'm going to be watching very carefully because uh, I've been following this company for a while now and uh, just watching the progress and listening to you describe it. Uh, it, it appears to be a huge runway for you guys. And, and, and I'm sure there will be some speed bumps and some competitors and other things that come in, but um, it seems like you have a head start. So uh, I'll be closely watching and uh, Aaron, thank you. This has been incredible. I think this has been, uh, I think it was a great overview of, I think we touched on just about everything that I wanted to, from a capital allocation perspective, from uh, the factoring to, t- to try and pay a little bit about culture too. So this has been great. Thanks for being on. Enjoyed it, Ben. Take care. Alrighty, thank you. That's it for our show today. We hope you enjoyed the conversation. We recognize that you have a lot of different podcast choices and we appreciate you spending the time with us. We are continually working to make the show better and we would love your feedback. The more candid and honest, the better. 
And if you have any suggestions for public company CEOs you would like to see on the podcast, please let us know. And of course, warm intros are always appreciated. Please feel free to email us at podcast at co-streetcapital.com with your comments or suggestions. Thanks again, and stay tuned for the next episode of Compounders, Anatomy of a Multibiker.